You're tuned to Hawaii Public Radio here uh, uh, at uh, HPR, and uh, this is Catherine Cruz. At this hour, a news conference with a State Department of Education and city transportation officials are getting underway. It's to address uh, bus issues on Kauai, as well as to talk about efforts to increase high school ridership on Oahu's Skyline rail system when students head back to the classroom on August 7th. Public school teachers report next week. But this morning, we highlight an educational program at the community college level to help students get trained for rail jobs. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us in studio. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. So there's this Leeward Community College program, and it's called the Integrated Industrial Technology Program. And it's a two-year associate's degree that trains people for mechanical tech jobs. So graduates go on into manufacturing and technical jobs at places like Pepsi, but many end up at Hitachi doing rail jobs. And years ago, a workforce development group pulled together stakeholders, and that brought together LCC and Hitachi. It was a partnership that really helped to create this program. Rod Babayan is Hitachi's engineering and asset manager. He worked with the program coordinator, Bill Labby, to develop the program back in 2016-2017. And during this this process, Babayan would bring Labby around the plant to check out the machinery. At that 2014 time frame, it was basically kind of just Hart and LCC and the city mapping up what the expectation is for this program. You know, as we got into 2015, we involved Jason Lurs and Saldo operations and maintenance team to give input and start the discussion, okay, what should this curriculum look like? Because Bill, he and I initially had a sketch of what the general curriculum would look like. We kind of looked at not, not specifically limiting to the rail system specifically, but in general, what we can offer students who are interested or and who decide to go into the, the program to kind of uh, apply it industry-wide, not just rail, but also process technology, Love's Bakery, Chevron, you know, any other manufacturing plant locally. So just basic skills. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really cool program, and Labby and his instructors work pretty closely across this four-semester course, and students start out with a very basic safety training and math, but then they're also learning electrohydraulics, which could be used in wastewater systems and software development, like something called PLCs, which are programmable logic controllers, which I learned all about kind of learning <laughs> yeah, in the reporting process. Yeah, you actually visit. The site. Yes, I visited the LCC workforce development site, and it's this wonderful modular classroom. It's big. All of the rooms have computers, different hands-on simulations. There's a lot of technology that I didn't know existed before. There's like a miniature wastewater system that the Mm. students are working to program throughout the semester. So that's just one of the many things that they do. And this is part of the workforce development program. And Labby says they have an open line of communication with some manufacturing groups, including Hitachi. He hires my people faster than I can graduate them sometimes, <laughs> which is good, right? I mean, that, that's an important thing. Uh, the degree never would have existed if it hadn't been for the rail system. Uh, a lot of people think bad things about the rail. It has opened up a lot of opportunities for a lot of companies. See the curriculum, you can see where, where we go. It is not a traditional uh, stovepipe type of curriculum where you would see like an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer or a civil engineer. Now the term is mechatronics. They're, you're a mechatronics engineer. Mechanical, electrical, electronic, and controls. Uh, and that's what this is, is a technician program. It's not an engineering program. And the program really lends itself to that if you are planning to go into an engineering degree, this is a really good foundation. And with the Hitachi folks that I talked to yesterday, they really found that this really sets up people for their training for the jobs that they have opened. And um, they have so far 13 graduates from this program who are now employed at Hitachi. They are all still there working, which is pretty impressive. So one of those graduates is Lauren Yamamoto. She works as an automated train control as a technical administrator. She first learned about the program when she was in sixth grade and she was participating in robotics. And she graduated last year and she says that it's 
one of those things that, you know, she wasn't drawn to at first, but when she learned about robotics, she loved it. And she says that more than half of her team graduated from the IIT program. Not only was it to be able to learn the technical side of the collaboration, but also people in my class, we all came from very different backgrounds. We had, you know, a lot of veterans, retired or reserved. We had a lot of people that just come out of high school. I had just come out of high school. We had some people that, you know, they went and worked in construction and then decided to come back to school. So my class, our age range was like 18 to like 60. Yeah, so being able to work with just such a diverse group of people from different walks of life with, you know, different types of knowledge was very valuable. So the program really focuses on technical and collaboration. Yeah, it's interesting because I know in the past we've done stories with LCC and they have a, a, a pretty good um, automotive, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a program there and their technicians, I think, have competed uh, in uh, with programs across the state and they've come home with, you know, high honors with awards. So it, it's interesting mm-hmm. to see what's being done at the community college level. Absolutely. It's a really neat program. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina. Thanks, Catherine. We've been talking to HPR's Sabrina Bowden. You can look for her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. The political organization No Labels is trying to unite Americans around a third-party candidate for 2024. The American people are not divided. The leaders of both parties in Washington are divided. I'm Anthony Brooks, but critics worry their efforts could backfire and put Donald Trump back in the White House. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Make your living on the Mississippi River. Climate change is a business challenge. We definitely feel like the weather patterns are getting more extreme. Uh, we're seeing more water versus less water, depending on the uh, seasonality of that of that change. I'm Kai Rizdal. River transport as an economic climate indicator. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Invasive species that have been here so long that they've become part of our current ecosystem is what we're diving into today for the Backyard Quiz. You probably know the story of how the mongoose got to Hawaii, native to India. It was brought over in the late 1800s to control rats in the sugarcane fields. Today, the mongoose population has a foothold on Hawaii Island, Maui, Molokai, and Oahu. Kauai, not so much. And it's found its way into local pop culture. Jokes about hang loose mongoose and the Hawaiian squirrel are common. This non-native species brings to mind another creature, also from India, that was supposed to help control an agricultural pest, the cutworm moth. But it's now more well-known for spreading weeds and once setting a building on fire with a lit cigarette. Do you know what invasive species we're talking about? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. (music) 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Something to crow about, record research funding for the University of Hawaii. It's $11 million more than last year and marks a half a billion dollars for the second year in a row. The UH Board of Regents got the report last week. We talked to uh, Vasilis Sirmos, Vice President for Research and Innovation, about the impact that those monies have on our economy. It includes $16 million for the community colleges under a Resilience Good Jobs Challenge program as an example similar to what we heard about in the previous segment. Those numbers are a testament to the good work that our faculty, staff, and students are doing. And also what it actually shows is that the university didn't all of a sudden came up with these wonderful numbers. The president had put a strategy over the last five years of how to increase our research portfolio, and we have been working methodically by hiring faculty, investing in facilities, investing in equipment and infrastructure in order to be able to get to that number. And then once we got into that number last year, we'd be able to sustain, maintain that number. And this year, we actually did even better than last year. So our goal is clearly to do very well every year over half a billion dollars, but we also want to put the foundation in order to be increasing this number in our research enterprise in a sustainable manner. And, you know, we need to look at this as how we can be impactful uh, for our communities. That's uh, another uh, big advantage that we have. A lot of these research money, which are actually investments from the federal government to the university and the state, impact our local communities. And if you start from sea level rise and climate resilience, climate adaptation to alternative energy, conservation, and then you go to health care, cancer research. These are areas that impact our daily life. And uh, we are a small state. And having a university like ours in our community, it is something uh, fantastic as far as I'm concerned. improves the quality of life of our community, of our citizens, and actually improves uh, the whole state as a whole. Talk about some of the specific projects that fall under, let's say, you know, the climate change umbrella. So we have a, a project, for example, from the Office of Naval Research and Sea Level Rise, and this is a project that one of our experts is leading, Chip Fletcher, who is the interim dean of the School of Ocean Earth Science and Technology, and examines how sea level rise actually affects not only the coastal areas with respect to erosion, but also with floods, with rain, king tides, and how all those factors aggravate the sea level rise. And this is something that touches us every day as an island community. Another project that we have that has been going on for a decade or two is the multi-ethnic cohort or cancer center, which actually is a study, a unique study that uh, follows uh, American Japanese and the special cancers or the different cancers that they have from uh, other ethnicities. That is something that impacts us every day and shows how precision medicine or personalized medicine is the future going forward. I know we were talking with the dean over there at the medical school, you know, before he stepped down, just about research that will be kicked off, you know, as we look at the different, you know, indigenous communities. Yes. So we are also looking at health equity, health disparities, uh, rural areas, and how we can actually improve health delivery in those areas, uh, whether it is with telemedicine, whether it is with medical residences in these areas, and what are the benefits to that, uh, outreach to the community. So these are uh, very important 
important areas for for us, for the state, and for the well-being of the community. We've been funded to do that kind of work from the National Institute of Health probably for the last five years, and this past year was one of the largest awards we got for $20 million for this type of work. Well, you know, I know the issue of... Uh Workforce development is a biggie as well, particularly in the healthcare industry. And uh, the University of Hawaii is looking at uh, different ways to attack this problem. Yes. So uh, the university is looking actually to attack uh, the workforce development in three, four different areas where uh, uh, we have a lot of uh, shortcomings or a lot of shortages uh, of professionals. One of them is the healthcare. There is a, a crisis, if you will, especially during and after the pandemic, and how we going to train the new generation of nurses, uh, doctors, uh, phys- uh, physical uh, PT, physical trainers. Uh, it's going to be a, mon- a monumental task. And uh, we received uh, some funding from the Department of Commerce to be able to create these pathways for our uh, young individuals to get into this profession. Another one which is as uh, important as the health sector is the education sector. We have a severe shortage of teachers. Uh, We have a severe shortage of early learning, early childhood teachers. So these are areas that we're looking to improve and actually working very closely with our community colleges and the Department of Education. Yes, and we have done stories recently about how the lack of nursing faculty is hindering our ability to get more students in the classroom. I mean, the applicants are there, but we just don't have enough space. We don't have enough teachers. Uh, So that's a problem. That is a problem, and uh, that is about infrastructure and also places for residency because our nurses, like our doctors, they have to do residency and they have to actually participate within our hospitals. So extramural funding and federal funding gives opportunities for us and for our hospital to increase the amount of residencies for our doctors, but also for our pharmacists, our nurses, our physical assistants. So these are the things we got to look. And for us, it's much more difficult than a larger state because we're small. So that amount of residences is also not very large. There is a big push also to develop those programs or expand the programs at the community college level, you know, whether they be for paramedics. Yeah. So... We have a substantial effort of uh, healthcare workforce, health sciences or healthcare workforce development. The community colleges, Capulani Community College, uh, leads that effort. Uh, we have programs for EMTs. We have uh, programs for uh, physical assistance. So uh, these are areas as we grow older as a community those areas are going to be of extremely high demand. And unfortunately, as a state, we do grow older, and the average age of of the state, of the citizens of the state, is actually creeping up, which is a good thing. But on the other hand, you will need all that healthcare infrastructure around us. Well, all we have to do is, you know, read the headlines, you know, uh, we have brought in traveling nurses. We have brought in traveling teachers. We have ta- teachers from the Philippines that the Department of Education brought in to help yes. meet the the the, um, the shortfall. Uh, so, yeah, definitely, there's a lot to be done in those areas where we increase our capacity. Uh, but is there anything else that you can share with us about you know what we're doing uh, with artificial intelligence and 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 grappling with you know what yes. lies ahead? So- uh, lately, or uh, yeah, lately we have hired uh, five to ten new faculty in computer science and engineering in the areas of artificial intelligence, and machine learning, visualization, and what we actually have as our goal is not to do artificial intelligence for the sake of artificial intelligence, but how artificial intelligence actually can facilitate areas like 
sustainability, like conservation, like health care, and how can we use AI in order to uh, get competitive on some of those areas. And uh, we're on our way there. We have some uh, really exciting results out there, especially on the health care sector or the health sciences sector with prognosis, diagnosis, using AI. Uh, so we need to continue to do that. And, it's, and I think we, we are getting very good at it. Yeah, and it takes us back to, you know, what can, how can we be more impactful with what we do? Yeah, so uh, as a university within a small state, we have to be very careful of where we put our resources and prioritize those resources. And for us, our first priority is what kind of an impact we have here in the state and locally, right? And how can we advance the state with whatever we do in our research and innovation portfolio or with whom we train for our future workforce development. You know, because we're always looking for different industries to develop, uh, I don't know, but certainly this pandemic has taught us that we need to be more resilient and we need to grow our own food, uh, more yeah. of our own food. Anything more on the ag front? Uh, so the, the ag is another very interesting piece. Uh, it is uh, uh, agriculture in the state of Hawaii is very different from agriculture in the rest of the continental U.S. We are an island community. We have a, uh, a very uh, small uh, ag footprint on our state, so we have to be selective. We have to be smart. And Above all, we have to have a system that supports our farmers. And we want to make sure that our farmers get the latest technology in order to be competitive with the larger farming industries from the mainland. So farming uh, here in Hawaii is very important, not because only from food resilience, but also from food security uh, for our state. That was Vasilis Sirmos, uh, Vice President for Research and Innovation at the University of Hawaii. He was talking about the record half a billion dollar research funding from the federal government, industry, and nonprofit groups, and the job that it, jobs it creates as a result of its efforts. One of the stories featured today by our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat has to do with land use rules on Maui and our sunshine laws. It's a story by reporter Marina Riker, but it's editor Chad Blair who joins us for today's Reality Check. Hi, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. So Marina was busy tracking this story. <laughs> yeah, actually, she is covering a Maui Planning Commission meeting, which is going on even as we speak in Wailuku and happy to fill in for her. Uh, and my guess is that she will have probably an update to this story uh, either later today or tomorrow. But in a nutshell, the commission, the planning commission on Maui is supposed to vote today on rules uh, that govern development and construction projects uh, along Maui's coastlines and beaches. These rules originally date back to the 1970s. A lot has changed in the last 50 years. Climate change, I think, would be number one. And there is this tension about you know people that want to ease the permitting process to to help hotels and other businesses and homes where the ocean is encroaching very closely on the shoreline washing it away and others that are worried there will be less scrutiny and that we won't actually be preserving uh these very important resources that we have but here's the twist it turns out maui county failed to include some testimony uh, when the commission the maui planning commission was deciding with these new rules this was back in march well, the Office of Information Practice said, you can't do that. You actually have to need to consider these things. OIP actually covers public information and open meetings. You mentioned the Sunshine Law. So it looks like the commission is going to make a decision as early as today uh, to re-vote on that same issue on governing 
how we handle construction and development along our coastlines. Yeah, and what was intriguing to me was this is testimony by a former employee. <laughs> right. right. It wasn't just it wasn't just anybody. Johan Lal is this person's name, uh, and sure enough, uh, raised specific concerns that, of course, only he would know because he was involved with Maui County activities. One of the things that he brought up was. Is this going to give staff greater discretion to to waive or to reduce a fee by up to five fifty thousand dollars without actually checking with the planning commission first? So that was one concern. Uh, he also raised a question about the working group that actually crafted these rules that put this together. Did they actually follow Sunshine Law requiring open meetings? I can tell you that uh, Maui County did not respond. Uh, to a comment, uh, uh, an inquiry from Marina. We'll see whether she has an update later on that. But these were serious enough that OIP had to step in, causing the Planning Commission to revote. Yeah, and her story mentions uh, that the uh, Maui, Char- Maui County Charter uh, requires that you know you have representation from certain areas, right? And yeah, this ca- this is a new development. So because we just had the election in 2022 in November, and sure enough, it was a new charter amendment question there for Maui County. You have to have one member on that Maui Planning Commission representing all seven residency areas in the county. That's not the current case. South Maui is not represented. Kahului. It's unclear whether the Maui Planning Commission was going to take that up on its agenda today, but of course this is the law. There might be some wiggle room in terms of how long you have it to to, to uh, make those changes. But if you're making such a major change considering the coastlines, uh, the beaches, you really need to have representation equally per what the voters said needed to be done. Right, and some might say, well, this is a process story, but it's really important when we're talking climate change. And one of the pictures that you folks feature uh, on your website, you know, is this dark uh, uh, image of, you know, you're looking now from the top of the high rise down to the shoreline. And boy, is that building uh, built really close to the water. Uh, you know, and it's not just Maui County, as you know, that we have places like this uh, all over the state, unfortunately. And I know exactly which photo you're talking about. I mean, it's, it's, it's taken from a high level looking down and the water is just pretty much slapping up against uh, the structure. And you can see the rocks, the reef exposed and whatnot. Uh, we should also add, by the way, these rules that the Planning Commission is working on, they've got to be updated uh, every 10 years. And so all the more reason to to get the rules together now. Who knows what things are going to be like? Who knows what that building is going to look like 10 years from now or others along the shoreline? And we're really talking about anything that's Malka, if you will, from the highway, right? The coastlines and beaches these very precious resources. Yeah, I know. A uh, scary thing to consider uh, when you uh, talk about sea level rise. But thank you. Very important story. Uh, appreciate yeah, your time. Stay tuned. Absolutely. Hopefully Marina will have an update for us no later than tomorrow. All right. Thanks so much. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can track this developing story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. On the next Fresh Air, the first black sheriff of a southeast Virginia county deals with racial tensions while hunting down a serial killer who preys on black children. S.A. Cosby talks about his new crime novel and its connections to his experiences living in a county with a Confederate statue in front of the courthouse. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Starting next year, you could be paying a dollar more if you sign up to take a surf lesson or jump on a fishing charter boat or sign up for a snorkeling tour. It's a new law that allows the State Department of Land and Natural Resources to require the charge for commercial businesses that bring customers into our nearshore waters. The idea is to get 
better data on the impact on our marine resources. David Sakota is an aquatic program manager on the island of Hawaii. We talked to him about what's in store as a series of three meetings kicks off tonight across the state this week. By law, uh, the fee applies to any commercial ocean operator that's required to have a commercial use permit from our Division of Boating and Ocean Recreation. So that includes uh, businesses such as surf pools, snorkel tour operators, scuba tour operators, whale watch operators, basically any activity that takes passengers on the ocean for commercial tours. And this fee is assessed whether you're a resident or a non-resident? That's correct. It doesn't distinguish between passengers that are residents and non-residents. If you're purchasing a ticket to do this ocean activity, then you'd be assessed that extra dollar per person fee. And so what's the intent of this? Yeah, so the purpose is to generate revenues for conservation, restoration, enhancement, and overall management of Hawaii's marine resources. You know, we've been seeing a disconnect between folks that use the ocean, they benefit from our natural resources. That's the whole reason they come to Hawaii to visit, to experience our ocean, our coral reef. Uh, But there's no mechanism in place for them to really give back to those resources other than, you know, the general um, taxes that they pay on their spending. Um, And a lot of that doesn't even come back to the Division of Aquatic Resources for management. And so... Um, through legislation, we're able to set up this mechanism, the user fee, where users who benefit from those resources can actually contribute back toward management of those resources. So does the money go into a special fund? Yes. The law created the Ocean Stewardship Special Fund, so all user fees will go into that special fund. And the fund will be used for marine resource conservation, enhancement, management, research, education, as well as specific projects like installing and maintaining the use mooring buoys so that commercial operators can use those without dropping anchor and damaging coral, you know, for compensatory mitigation or impacts to marine habitat like coral, things like that. That's what the fund is designated for. You know, I saw a story recently about the number of boats that are out there at Turtle Canyon off Waikiki. And I was astounded because I've been out there and to see so many boats. And you're right, you know, if they're all dropping anchors, chances are there could be damage. I mean, we're talking on a daily basis, these boats are out there. Yeah, I've been out there too. You know, there's anchor damage when anchors are dropped. There's, you know, people interacting with marine resources in ways that are inappropriate and maybe they don't know. So, you know, one of the ideas is to use these revenues for education to educate our visitors on how to interact with those resources appropriately. And I know this has been on the radar of officials for a while. I, I think it was a NOAA person that came out with our swim group just to observe to see what was going on there. So... This is really, though, the first time then we'll actually get a good count, right? Yeah. So we're setting up a system so ocean operators can get a username, login, and they need to report how many customers or passengers that they serve the prior month, and that will be the basis of the fee that they can send to us. So through that, we'll get a really good number of, you know, the number of visitors and and residents, the number of basically paid passengers or customers that are interacting with our marine resources. Well, and this is a good thing because then it'll drive home to the operators the impact that they could be having on our resources. Yep, definitely. Um, and with the uh, with the fee payment, we're also requesting information about the type of activities that these businesses are, are doing with their customers. And so that'll give us an idea of how we can allocate resources to better manage. Well, you know, we had a guest on who was talking about, you know, that buzzword, regenerative tourism. And uh, he was sharing that he went down to talk to some uh, uh, surf schools. And those operators really had no idea what he was talking about and no... uh, It wasn't connecting that what they were doing could have some impact, you know, on the resource. So this would be a way to be able to track it. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's other countries, other jurisdictions that have these systems in place to make sure that their 
tourism industry is sustainable. You know, we've been lagging, but hopefully this is a way that we can start to promote that concept and get the operators as well as the visitors you know, informed on, on how uh, their activities are having an impact, but also how they can reduce that impact and actually give back to the resources that really they're the, the ultimate ones that are benefiting from those resources. And so tell us about the process. I mean, you're about to kick off a series of uh, meetings around the state. What happens when you get this information back? How long before we could get some rules in? First, I'll, I'll talk about the public hearings coming up. On Tuesday, July 25th, there's going to be a Zoom meeting for Maui, Moloka'i, and Lanai. On Wednesday, the 26th, it'll be for Hawaii Island. Again, um, there'll be a Zoom meeting. And then on the 27th, it'll be for Oahu and Kauai. In conjunction with those Zoom meetings, we've set up in-person sites. So if folks don't have internet connection or, or want to go up to a, a physical place to provide their testimony on that Zoom meeting, they can do that. And that's, that information is all available on our website. Okay. And then uh, at, once you get the testimony, and you're talking testimony not just from the operators, but also from the general public? Yes, it's uh, open to the public. Uh, anyone can provide testimony. And and once we get that testimony, it'll take us a while to, uh, you know, go through those, respond as appropriate. And then the next step after that would be to bring another submittal to the Board of Land and Natural Resources. And they're the board that decides whether to move forward with the formal rulemaking. Um, so that'll probably happen um, in the next couple months. So what's the hope for the Division of Aquatic Resources? You know, when, how soon could you implement this and start collecting the fees? So the statute requires the fees to start being collected on January 1st, 2024. And right now we're on track to meet that date. Um, so the hope is that we implement the rules and uh, set up the fee payment system to launch on January 1st, 2024. Okay. And does it have a sunset date or, or it just is in place until it gets changed? The user fee itself doesn't have a sunset date. The way that the legislature designed it is for the special fund to have a sunset date after five years. So in uh, 2029, instead of the fees coming back to the division for our management of the fund, the fees would go back to the general fund and it would be at the legislature's disposal. And I think they did that to as, as kind of a pilot to test if it's working. You know, our hope is we can amend the rule, uh, amend the law and uh, have that those fees permanently designated to DNR. That was Dave Sakota, who is with the Division of Aquatic Resources at the Department of Land and Natural Resources. He was talking about a new ocean user fee and a series of statewide meetings that kick off tonight and will be held throughout the week. Look for links to sign up on the conversation page of our website later today. time to introduce you the answer to today's backyard quiz. The introduced species we asked you about earlier is a bird native to India and brought to Hawaii in 1866. It was part of an effort to control an agricultural pest, the cutworm moth. The bird quickly spread through the main islands, becoming one of the most abundant avians in Hawaii. The sounds they make are probably so ingrained in everyday background noise, you probably don't even notice it anymore. And the bird has become something of a local inside joke because its name sounds very fam uh, similar to the pigeon word used to lessen the importance of something 
No worry, bra. Mine is. It's probably dawning on you now that the answer to today's backyard quiz is the mina bird. And Wayne from the Punchbowl area got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Salman Tour, No Ordinary Love, through October 8th. Supported by the Shangri-La Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design. HonoluluMuseum.org Do you love classical music so much you want to share it with the community? We're looking for a new part-time host for HPR 2, your home for classical music. Candidates should have a strong understanding of classical music, radio broadcasting, be comfortable with public speaking, and perform well under pressure. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. The highly anticipated film Oppenheimer opened around the country this past weekend. It centers on acclaimed physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. He's often referred to as the father of the atomic bomb for leading the efforts to devise and construct the world's first nuclear weapon in the early 1940s. The film tracks his life from his early college years to the first test of the bomb in 1945 to the aftermath of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. It's a film that retired University of Hawaii physicist Michael Jones has been looking forward to seeing. Jones helped assemble the beginning and the end of the bomb exhibit at uh, the University of Hawaii's Hamilton Library in 2020 that also focused on the atomic bomb. It only ran for two weeks before it was closed due to the onset of the pandemic. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Jones in our studio to talk about the film and about his thoughts on nuclear weapons. Can you describe your experience and your interests in the atomic bomb? Well, I've been interested for a long time. In the 1970s, there was a period where it was generally called detente, where it looked like things were going in a direction between the United States and the Soviet Union, that the chance of outright hostilities was decreasing. But that turned around, and I felt it was partly my responsibility as a physicist to warn people of the danger. If things did turn around and there were actual hostilities between the United States and the Soviet Union. So I decided I needed to educate myself about that, and I got involved in a bunch with other physicists who also agreed that something needed to be done to reduce the tension between the two countries. Yeah, because during, uh, during the Cold War, right, there was what amounts to what I can remember being an arms race between the U.S., and the Soviet Union to see who could build more nuclear weapons. And there was a lot of films that came out during that time that I think expressed and explored the fear of, of nuclear war. What were you and your, and your fellow physicists able to accomplish during that time in, in working towards trying to relieve some of that tension? Well, I, I think we managed to educate a lot of people and people may, may have been more willing to accept what physicists were doing as less biased than what other professions were doing. We tried to, I tried to, and I think most physicists who involved tried to present a, a minimally biased view of what the situation was and let people educate themselves and make up their own mind. Yeah, I think we were coming out of the Vietnam War, right? And I, th I think there was a lot of distrust that, a lot of people had distrust of, of the government. So yes. it, it seemed like a scientific point of view was something that people would listen to more so maybe at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And so, you know, we're, we're talking because the Christopher Nolan film Oppenheimer was finally released this this weekend. When the movie was announced, when, when you first heard that Christopher Nolan was going to make this film about Robert Oppenheimer, who's the father of the atomic bomb, what did you hope they would include in the film? 
Well, I hoped it would include what he did after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when he partly felt responsible for that and tried to get the United Nations to take action and tried to get more public dialogue about the situation. And the other, the other thing he tried to do as an insider was to stop the development of hydrogen bombs. So I hope it wouldn't just be an emphasis on developing the first nuclear weapon, but it would include what happened a few years after that as well. And it did. Yeah. And I, I think if this movie was made maybe 20, 30 years ago, it would have been very easy to end on the testing of the nuclear bomb and the success that was and everyone cheering at, at, at the success. But there's more to the story than just the accomplishment. There's the fallout. There's the backlash. There's a lot more exploration of the guilt that Oppenheimer felt after so many people were killed. And, and I think even after his realization that so many more people could die at the hands of, of the thing that he created. Do you feel like he did feel a lot of guilt? Yes. And the losing his security clearance was also devastating to him. I mean, I've seen newsreel footage of him before and after that, and he's a totally different person. He's very subdued, almost devastated after he's lost his security clearance. And that didn't come through in the film as strongly as I thought it might. There's a scene near the end of the film where he's getting an award from President Johnson. I mean, he he was he was just overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. That didn't come through as devastatingly in the in the film. For someone in his position, a physicist, somebody that had worked on some top secret important projects for the U.S. government, can you explain? why that was such a devastating loss for him to lose his security clearance? Well, I mean, he, he seemed to revel in working with the other physicists, and, and it was very a very challenging endeavor. I mean, it was challenging from a theoretical physics point of view. It was challenging from an engineering point of view. I mean, it was an unprecedented undertaking, and he, he seemed to enjoy the challenge of that. And after... Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was a hero. He was a hero in the country. And he got asked his opinion on a variety of things. And uh, he seemed to enjoy that as well. And to lose all of that all of a sudden, I mean, I can't imagine what that must be like. As a fellow physicist, I imagine you want to work on projects that are challenging, that are important. From your own experience, what drives you to do the research that you did? Well, I mean, there are mundane things about it, just advancing knowledge a little bit at a time. But I think for a lot of us, it was the opportunity to maybe discover something that nobody had seen before, nobody had thought of before. I mean, that's very rare, but that's what motivates a lot of people who do physics research. Yeah, the opportunity to leave a, a legacy, right, that the world will remember you by, that seems like a pretty big motivator. For the current generation, I mean, the, the atomic bomb was, the first test was in July of 1945, nearly 80 years ago. So for the current generation who may not have an understanding of why this bomb was built in the first place, when we watch the film, it seems to me like Robert Oppenheimer's motivation was this opportunity to be the first to do something, to do something important that would play a role in stopping World War II. Do you feel like the movie accurately portrays his motivation for building the bomb? Yeah, I think it did a good job on that, actually. And and also um, the other physicists are involved. I mean, the number of scenes in the film where there are conversations between physicists who indicate you know, they really want what they're working on to stop World War II. We know that Russia has nuclear weapons. We hear rumors all the time that North Korea and Iran are working on nuclear weapons. What are your thoughts on the timing of the release of this film? 
how does it kind of bring to mind the danger that's still out there from the atomic bomb or from nuclear weapons? Well, I hope it makes people aware of the situation and the fact that something has to be done. At the very least, not make the situation worse. I'm not sure what the best path is and probably makes sense to have different tracks for different countries, but certainly something has to be done. It's almost certainly going to be worse if there are several countries that acquire nuclear weapons. As a physicist and someone who has done research on issues where science and technology have a substantial impact on society, what do you hope people in Hawaii will be reminded of when it comes to nuclear weapons or if they go and see this film? Well, I, I hope they will remember that Hawaii is, is part of the larger world and things that happen outside Hawaii can affect life in Hawaii. And if there were use of nuclear weapons outside Hawaii, that can have an effect in Hawaii. I have a, a sentence, a quote from Albert Einstein that expresses a scientific point of view that that I share, that I like to read. We scientists whose tragic de destiny it has been to make the weapon methods of annihilation ever more gruesome and more effective must consider it our solemn and transcendent duty to do all in our power to prevent those weapons from being used for the brutal purpose for which they were invented. I hope people will keep that in mind. I hope so too. Michael Jones, thank you so much for talking with me today. Really appreciate you coming okay. in. You're welcome. That was retired UH physics researcher Michael Jones talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about the new film Oppenheimer in theaters now. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we tell you about a public meeting that will be held to get community representation when it comes to issues around uh, Red Hill water. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.